Sure, you might think you're tough, but are you survive a chemical bath followed by a dip in spaghetti tough? Yeah, I didn't think so. But your phone could be, and this week we're taking a look at a phone that is designed to survive basically anything. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're taking a look at the Catphone S62. And if at any time I say Catphone S26, I mean S62. I only mentioned it because I've already written S26 twice at this point, and I'm only six sentences into the script, so there's a decent chance I'm going to screw this up at some point during the show. The Catphone is made by Cat, as in the heavy equipment builders that design forklifts and backhoes and dump trucks, and they make phones that are just as tough, or at least a company who licenses the cat name makes a phone that's just as tough. I'm not 100% sure about the relationship there. But anyway, this is a phone that was built to survive anything, including my wife, who has broken more phones in weird ways than you have. Trust me on that. Plus, we're taking a look at a nifty device that Cliff got for the show, and specifically for me, to solve a problem that I didn't realize I had, and it has been life-changing in many ways. And we will get to all of that, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. Before we get started, just a fun fact for you. I have COVID-19. I wrote a Twitter thread about it, link in the show notes, but the long story short is I got a really bad cold last week and never really went away, so I got tested, and sure enough, I'm a statistic. Now, I don't really need to say more about it beyond the Twitter thread, so I guess hit that up if you want more deets. But if my voice sounds scratchy, that's why. And at this point, I don't think I'm going to have to skip a week, but it remains a possibility. Last weekend, when this was at its worst, it took me about two days to edit what would normally be about four hours, so yeah, it kind of knocked me on my butt a little bit. This weekend has been a little weird too, but anyway, enough about me. Let's get to the rest of the news. The Hubble lives! After a month of being dark, NASA scientists managed to swap over to the backup computers on board and get the old girl back up and running again. Back in June, the telescope reported a glitch with the power control unit that makes sure a steady supply of power gets to the computers on board. Well, that shut down and went into safe mode, but this is different than the safe mode that runs on your computer where nothing works and your icons are the size of garbage cans. This is a safe mode like, just to be safe, we're shutting everything down, going home, probably won't be in the office tomorrow. Well, NASA was able to reboot the computer and switch over to the backup power control unit, which brought the errant telescope back to life. And what did the Hubble do? Oh, just take a picture of two galaxies crashing into each other, that's all. I don't think I need to tell you I'm excited that the Hubble lives to fight another day. I like to take in astrophotography every once in a while, and the Hubble is a great source for that. Plus, I'm more than a little glad that something as old as the Hubble is worth fighting for, because frankly... I'm older than the Hubble, and damn it, I think I'm still worth fighting for. (laughs) I'm okay. This week, one of the biggest stories came out of a company in Israel called the NSO Group. This is a hacker-for-hire group that can be hired by governments to, you know, hack stuff. In this case, Forbidden Stories, which is a Paris-based journalism group and not an erotic book publisher like I originally thought, although they are located in Paris, so... 
I guess I can't totally rule it out. Anyway, Forbidden Stories obtained a list of more than 50,000 cell phone numbers who were targets of NSO Group's Pegasus software. Now, that's a big deal because Pegasus is a zero-day, zero-click exploit that allows hackers unfettered access into iPhones and Android phones alike. Basically, Pegasus sends an SMS message to a phone without even registering on the target device, and it allows access to everything on the phone, photos, videos, files, grandma's secret chicken marinade, the latest unpublished tweet that you haven't sent because you don't want the world to know that you actually still watch the Backyardigans. I mean everything. Of the people targeted, there were 189 journalists, 600 politicians, 65 business executives, 85 human rights activists, and several heads of state. Most of the numbers listed were for phones in Mexico and the Middle East, but that doesn't make it any less bad. Basically, the idea that anyone could gain zero-click access to any cell phone they wanted is a little bit scary. I'm secure in the knowledge that no one would ever want to break into my phone, and even if they did, the most incriminating thing they'd find are scripts for upcoming podcast episodes. That's pretty hardcore for a state government, I know. I mean, I'm huge in the foreign government circuit, but all the same, I'm fairly sure that I'm safe. Still, there's a ton of articles out there explaining how this exploit works, and I don't speak that flavor of nerd, so I encourage you to give it a read on your own. Billionaire Jeff Bezos rode his gigantic space stick into the edge of space this week and returned home wearing a cowboy hat for some damn reason. And by the way, if you're wondering why I'm aping off all the folks who called this a space stick on the day of the event, I am not. I'm hearkening back to a month ago when I first called it a space stick, and as far as I'm concerned, everyone else is copying Moi. There's a link to that tweet in the show notes, by the way, so I can prove it. Anyway, after Bezos and company climbed down off the celestial dildo, Jeff called it the best day ever, transforming instantly from billionaire to valley girl. Jeff's cosmic cock and balls lifted the group up to 62 miles above the surface of the planet, where they achieved weightlessness for approximately four minutes before returning to Earth. And for those keeping score, that's two billionaires in space ish, but I have to think that the real winner here is Elon Musk. But Musk hasn't been to space, you might think. And no, that's right. Musk has not been to space. Musk has instead put millions of dollars of cash-generating equipment into space, including satellites, cargo, and, you know, astronauts, each of which is actually getting stuff done. Not just screaming, yee-haw, for a little less time than it takes to listen to this news story before settling back down to Earth. Sure, Branson and Bezos plan to charge money for the penis rides to infinity and beyond, and maybe there are enough rich guys to launch into space that won't mind riding on top of a galactic vibrator to do it. But I wouldn't be so sure. Especially after Wally Funk, dear old Wally Funk, woman pioneer of the space program, gave the ride a... eh... review, saying, We went right on up and I saw darkness. I thought I was going to see the world, but we weren't quite high enough. Wow, I've seen more forgiving reviews for bad waffle makers on Amazon, Jeff. You might want to make sure you can moderate that comment before it makes it onto your penis's Amazon product page. 
I mentioned last week that Disney released Black Widow simultaneously in theaters and as a premier access video. On Disney Plus, it costs $30 to rent Black Widow for three months prior to its release to everyone in October. On opening weekend, Black Widow pulled in a cool $80 million, which is pretty good for an opening weekend. Add in the $60 million that they got from streaming, and that's a decent take. But week two rolled by, and Black Widow brought in just $26.3 million, which is a 67% decline in revenues and that's not so good, boss. Theaters argued that a simultaneous release would hinder box office profits, which is not only bad for theaters, but also bad for distributors, publishers, and, oh yeah, Disney itself. Because on Disney+, Plus, if someone wants to watch the movie again... It doesn't cost them anything. Rewatches are a thing for sure, but even so, given the choice between theaters and your couch, your couch makes a pretty compelling argument. Is this a major problem? I don't know. Personally, I haven't been to a theater since, I think, Avengers Endgame, and I've always enjoyed my couch more than the sticky floor and God knows what else is on those seats in the theater. For event movies like Endgame, there is a communal aspect to enjoying the event together. Beyond that, though... Theaters are kind of meh, so I'm all for the current release cycle. Sadly for me, and fortunately for theater owners, I'm positive that once COVID is in the rearview mirror, this simultaneous release deal will probably not last, especially given the failure of Black Widow to capitalize literally on the second weekend. Will things change? Possibly. But for now, it seems fairly clear that one of two things is going on here. Either A, Black Widow wasn't a very good movie, and that's subjective, but... Yeah, it was really just okay. Or B, simultaneous release is a bad idea and probably needs to go away if we're still going to get blockbuster-level features in the future. Last week, we talked about Netflix's plan to get into the game, literally. This week, we learn a little more detail about how that's going to work. Netflix sent a letter to investors outlining the plan, and there's some interesting details in there. According to Slashgear, Netflix will not charge extra for the service, which is surprising and really good news. Netflix seems gaming as just another form of content category, which is an interesting way to think about it. I'm not positive I agree, because that kind of content is going to draw a whole different crowd. Netflix said they're going to focus on mobile games, and presumably the games will be played within the Netflix app somehow. The big question is, will Netflix attract gamers like it has movies and TV watchers? Gamers are a notoriously picky bunch, so I sure hope that the game offerings will be good. I also wonder if games will be enough to draw subscribers who are not already subscribing. Like, gamers probably already have Netflix, right? Whatever the case, it's going to be an interesting journey for Netflix, and I, for one, wish them well. Xbox Game Pass is currently the industry default for PC and console games, so if Netflix can suck up some mobile gaming into its web, that'll be a win for Netflix and Netflix subscribers. So overall, I have to say I'm on board. Instagram introduced a sensitive content slider into its app this week, which lets users decide how much or how little potentially sensitive content they want to see. Instagram says the slider is for, quote, posts that don't necessarily break our rules, but could potentially be upsetting to some people, such as posts that may be sexually suggestive or violent. You can adjust the content slider to see more or less types of sensitive content, and honestly, I'm kind of on board with this idea. I really can't think of 
anything objectionable that I personally don't want to see that isn't already against Instagram's rules. But I could see why some people might want to filter out some really nasty stuff while leaving other questionable content alone. Personally, I think life needs more sliders in it. Life is not binary, people. It isn't just on or off. There are shades of gray in there, I believe. 50 shades of gray, unless I'm mistaken. I honestly didn't think Instagram would be the first of its kind to offer this kind of slider. YouTube, for sure. Can I turn off the Nazi content slider on YouTube and Facebook? That would be nice. The default setting of a slider limits the amount of sensitive content, so you might want to log in there and turn the slider up or down. You know, I won't judge. I personally don't use Instagram all that much, so I'm not going to bother with it. But if I ever get a YouTube slider, I'm going to adjust that biatch hella quick. This week saw the release of the OnePlus Nord 2, which will not make it to U.S. shores, unfortunately, but will see release in India and Europe. Android Central takes the phone for a spin, and it comes in at roughly 400 euro, which is very not bad. The two headlines of the story are probably the processor and the camera. The processor is a MediaTek Dimensity 1200 AI. OnePlus and MediaTek work together to produce this custom version of the Dimensity 1200, resulting in the Dimensity 1200 AI. There's supposed to be a focus there on AI processing, so, you know, whatever. But Android Central says the processor is speedy as heck, and that's super sweet. Also, the camera is a nice focus for this mid-tier phone, no pun intended. The phone has a Sony IMX766 sensor, which is a 50-megapixel shooter with really good video stabilization and very good low-light performance. I was genuinely impressed with how the sensor performed in low-light especially. Seems the OnePlus is starting to figure out cameras, and that's good for everyone. I'm a little bummed out that this phone isn't coming to the U.S., though I... Honestly, probably wouldn't have bought one anyway, but that doesn't mean I didn't want to test it. I'm still hoping to crack that OnePlus egg, so maybe someday. In the meantime, if you live in India or Europe, this looks like a decent phone to pick up for not a ton of money. The internet freaked the hell out on Thursday, literally just as I was trying to log into Disney's website to make a reservation. That sucked, but I eventually did get my reservation in. Anyway, in addition to Disney, banks, brokerages, Sony's PlayStation Network, Southwest Airlines website, and more, all basically died for about an hour on Thursday. Content delivery network Akeme was the culprit. Akeme basically called it an outage and didn't really elaborate on what happened, but The Verge points out that this latest outage just goes to show you you that while the internet claims to be decentralized, it's really not. There are just a few companies out there who provide the internet, and if one of them has issues, it affects companies around the world. You might recall me reporting on Fastly's outage in June, which took down The Verge so much that they had to re resort to using a shared Google Doc to write reports. Take into account the number of companies that rely on AWS or Microsoft's Azure Cloud, and an outage to one of those services will seriously mess things up, too. It makes you realize just how delicate the internet can be and how reliant we are all on it. It's almost chilling, but now if you'll excuse me, I need to make some more reservations for Disney. And finally, the Wall Street Journal had a collection of journalists there examine the algorithm behind TikTok and how it learns about people. Basically, the journal created dozens of fake bot accounts and programmed them all with specific attributes and hashtags that they would look for and see how quickly the algorithm learned what they were interested in and why. More importantly, they also wanted to see what kind of rabbit holes were on TikTok. I strongly recommend that you watch the video narrated by the very talented Joanna Stern and check out how the algorithm 
algorithm learns what it knows about you. It's kind of cool and also kind of a little scary how accurate it is. Personally, I think TikTok knows me pretty well. It's not hard to figure out that I will always pause for puppies and bad jokes. I mean, seriously, some of those videos with dad jokes are wonderfully terrible. As for the benefit of a Dow TikTok account, I'm sorry to report that I could not keep up with the content. I mean, hell, I barely post to YouTube, and you want TikTok videos too? Anyway, go check out the Wall Street Journal video, and now if you'll excuse me, I have some more dad jokes to watch. Bugs, attachment, DevOps, backend, frameworks, backward, compiling, orienting, natural language, language software, blue text editor, book margin, Boolean web server. Welcome to Tech Yeah! This week's Tech Yeah is kind of a short one, but it has a little bit of a story behind it. You see, I've got a bad back, and I learned that the bad back was caused by me hunching over my laptop day in, day out. Cliff figured that out for me, and he got me a Roost laptop stand to help, and boy howdy, did it. The Roost stand is a laptop stand that folds down into a super compact form factor and expands out into an adjustable laptop stand that gets my laptop up off my desk and allows me to better position myself so my back stops hurting. And as it turns out, the Roost stand was invented by an engineer who had the same problem I did. James Olander had the same back problems I did, and he went ahead and designed the Roost stand to alleviate those problems. And what I like about the Roost is that it provides a stable platform for my laptop that's up off the table. Even with a gigantic laptop like my MSI, it's no problem for the Roost. Basically, you just slot the front of a laptop into rotating catches and then rotate the laptop back onto the stand and voila! You're in business. Now, in my case, that also means I had to pick up a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse to connect to the laptop. You can use your keyboard and mouse on the laptop, but then your arms are raised all the time and it gets tiring. You can also use the roost to make a sort of pseudo standing desk, but I found that I ended up in the same place, hunched over my laptop standing rather than sitting down. So as it stands now, no pun intended. I have a great laptop stand, and I have a great mouse and a great keyboard, and links to all of those will be in the show notes on benefitofadow.com. And if you pick any of those up, and they're all awesome, then I'll get a little extra cut at no cost to you, and you'll have my thanks. But for now, let's get back to the show. A few weeks ago, I took a brief look at a ruggedized tablet that was built for people who work in tough conditions. I'm not unfamiliar with those conditions myself, having been raised the son of a carpenter, and if I were still working for my dad today, this phone that I'm about to talk about would probably be the one that I carried, at least during the day. This phone is designed to withstand basically anything, and I put it through a mild series of tests. Like, I tested stuff that I would never test with other normal smartphones, but I wouldn't say I was extreme in any case. Regardless, the phone lives to this day, and that's a testament to its ruggedness, so it's time to give some thoughts. This is my full review of the Cat S62 Rugged Smartphone. It's easy to look at a smartphone these days and imagine how it would integrate into your lifestyle. Well, it's easy for you and it's easy for me, but for people that work in extreme environments, forest rangers, geologists, construction workers, factory workers, and more, it must be 
impossible to look at, I don't know, a Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra and imagine what pocket of that tool belt you're going to slip that into. Are you insane? That thing wouldn't last a week on a job site. Enter CAT, as in the company that makes the heavy machinery. And before I go too much further, I should point out that this is actually Bullet Group licensing the CAT name. This isn't actually a phone made by the same company that makes the heavy equipment. It's a licensing deal. But you don't license the CAT name if you're making pillows, people. Bullet is in this to build a hella rugged phone. And that's exactly what they did. I should also point out that the majority of this review is going to be based on the ruggedness of the phone. Yes, we'll look at the other stuff, but most of this phone is indeed about the ruggedness, so that's really where the bulk of my attention went. Now, I have tested rugged phones in the past, and they've been as good as the pieces of garbage that they were built to withstand. I mean, just god-awful slow and crappy. So, I wanted to get a sense as to what the industry was up to these days. It turns out, well, let's dive in. Right off the bat, this phone looks and feels like a frickin' brick. Like, this is a phone that you could legitimately use as a weapon to hurt someone. It's the first phone that I have not used a case for in years because this phone basically has the case built in. We'll get to that. But first, let's go over the internals. So this is a 5.7-inch FHD Plus display with huge bezels on the top, bottom, and sides. Well... Huge by modern standards, anyway. Inside, there's a Snapdragon 660 processor, 4 gigabytes of RAM, 128 gigabytes of storage, which is expandable via micro SD. There's a 48 megapixel main camera with 2 megapixel depth sensor. The battery is 4,000 milliamp hours and it supports Qi wireless charging, which is snazzy. Taking a tour around the outside, you've got your volume up, volume down, and power button in the wrong order on the right side. The power button is above volume where it does not belong. On the left side is a covered SIM tray and micro SD tray separate from each other. Oddly, when you open the cover, you still need a pin to eject the SIM tray. Seems unnecessary to me, but whatever. Also on the left side is a programmable button that can be assigned to push to talk or other functionality in the software. We'll talk about that more in a bit. On the bottom is a speaker port and a single USB Type-C port for data and charging. On the left and right sides, there are visible screws in the side rail. And on the back, it's all ruggedized rubber with a fingerprint sensor and two pogo pins, which can be used with a charger sold separately. On the front, Corning Gorilla Glass 6. Basically, this phone is a chunk that is heavy and feels like you could drive nails if you wanted it to. And yes, this phone is tough, and we'll talk more a bit about the tests I ran later. And the phone is more than just physically durable. According to CAT, the phone is IP68 water, sand, dust, and dirt resistant. It stands up to the mil-spec 810H standards. It can survive extreme temperatures, and this is where things get a little weird, or at least as weird as far as phone durability goes. You can scrub this phone with soap, water, and bleach. It's chemical resistant with alcohol abrasion tests up to 100 cycles. It's also resistant to non-incentive class 1 Division 2, Group A through D, and T4 chemicals. So basically, you can walk through a chemical spill with this phone in your pocket and it'll be fine. Your legs and body might not be, but your phone will be fine. But like I said, bleach, soap, water, chemicals, no problem at all. On the software side, this phone ships with Android 10 and Bullet promises to deliver Android 11 in fall of 2021, right around the time that Android 12 is coming out. Nifty. 
Beyond that obvious software short sheet is a mostly stock Android build, except the cat comes with its own set of apps, including a shortcut to the cat website, a toolbox, which is an app store with worker-related apps in it, and for some reason, cat has its own camera app, which requests permission to take photos when you first launch it. Uh, okay. A lot of the rest of the apps that the phone comes packed with are a mix of Google apps along with custom apps for phone and messaging. A terrible messaging app, by the way, and contacts. OEMs, seriously, this stuff is low-hanging fruit that Google will happily give to you. Take it. The one software addition that Cat makes is in the hardware key on the outside that's programmable. By default, it's set to a double press turning on the flashlight, and I actually really love that. I love it so much that when it came time to test the TCL phone, that will be the subject of my next review, I set the smart key to do that on the double press too. It just makes sense. You can program the key for any number of quick app launches and phone functions. The one thing that I did not like about the button is that the phone screen has to be on for that button to work. If you pick the phone up off a table and hit the programmable key right away, it won't work unless you push the power button first. It's a bit of a bummer, but eh, whatever. Aside from that, Cat really tried to monkey with the software with its own suite of apps, and none of them stood up to Google's defaults. They weren't even really close, I'm sorry to say. It's just a shame, because honestly, Google has all these apps ready to go. There's nothing to installing them or updating them. But anyway, you do you, Cat, or Bullet, or whoever you are. The camera on the back of the Cat S62 smartphone is a single 48-megapixel sensor from an unspecified manufacturer, but, you know, it's probably Sony. Anyway, there's also a 2-megapixel depth sensor, so, you know, just the one camera. On the front is an 8-megapixel shooter for selfies. One really nice thing that I wasn't used to was the fact that I only had to stop and take one photo. There's only one camera. There's no zoom, no ultra-wide. That's it. So taking sample photos was just kind of a weird experience. And I'm sure it will come to no surprise to you that these cameras are not very good. Oh, don't get me wrong. On a brightly lit day or even an overcast day, the camera is serviceable if a bit on the dark side. Photos overall are sharp and in focus, mostly. Occasionally the focus will wander a little bit, but overall I have little to complain about as long as you're in perfect light. Highlights get a little blown out, but the darks are generally okay, not a lot of detail lost in the shadows. I was frankly surprised at how well the camera performed. Macro shots are also fairly good. The depth of field is extremely shallow though, so often the bokeh starts before you even run out of flower. But even so, you can get some respectable macro shots with this camera. Maybe the depth sensor is actually... depthing? I don't know. Zoom is... well, just no. With the lights on and not zoomed, you're doing okay. Curiously, this phone doesn't have a burst function. It's been a while since I've tried a phone that didn't, but I still managed to snag a couple of decent shots on the trampoline. The selfie camera is a little all over the place, honestly. Sometimes it's dark, sometimes it's bright. Once again, here the surrounding light will have a big effect on what kind of photo you end up with. I know. Shocking insight, right? Portrait mode on both the main camera and the selfie camera is not quite as crisp as I would like. Considering the phone that this is tacked onto, it's perfectly decent, and you'll get better results from the main camera than you will the selfie camera. But overall, I'd call the camera on here just okay. At night, 
Well, the camera is plain just not good. Focus is all over the place. Whites are blown out, and there's some type of artifacting going on all over the place. It's like the pixels aren't properly aligned when the photo is put together. Even text, which is usually the easiest thing to resolve in a low-light photo, doesn't come out very well. On the video side, focus issues are the biggest problem you'll have, even in bright daylight. There's also very little stabilization on either the main camera and the selfie shooter. Bright light, low light, it doesn't matter. The video camera is just flat out bad, and that's not a surprise. This is a rugged phone, not a flagship phone. It's basically a budget phone shoved into a rugged and durable body, so the camera performs like a camera on a $250 phone, even though this phone costs $500. Moving on from the camera as a little bit of a bonus, I thought it would be fun to talk about some of the light torture tests that I put this phone through. Unfortunately, a family member of mine had a pretty bad accident before I had a chance to really put this phone through its paces. I had planned on riding several rides at Great America with this phone in my back pocket. Honestly, if this thing could stand up to a 300-pound fatty pulling 3Gs on the Superman ride, it could stand up to a lot. I also had planned on taking this phone to the beach and tossing it in the water and the sand, but unfortunately both of those trips had to get cancelled. As it was, this phone did get smashed into the dirt in my backyard garden and was washed thoroughly with soap and water in my sink. Additionally, this phone spent some time in my freezer. My first attempt caused the phone to boot into recovery mode, but the second attempt, the phone survived just fine. The phone also went for a little trip as high in the air as my wimpy arb could toss it. It landed and continued to record with no problem. The phone also went up against a few sprays of water, first from an overhead sprinkler used to cool down the amusement park crowd, and the next time a nighttime sprinkler bath at City Hall. Finally, the phone was dropped several times from 5 feet onto concrete. Overall, the phone held up decently with a few nicks and scars around the periphery. Honestly, considering how much this phone dealt with, I'm not dissatisfied on that account at all. If I were still a young man working on a job site as a contractor, this phone would be a solid contender for my tool belt. On the performance end, the phone is equally not great. This is not a gaming phone, not by any stretch of the imagination. But it is capable of normal tasks like surfing, reading the news, Twitter, Facebook, you know, the stuff that OnePlus slows down. I ran Geekbench scores, and they're all pretty bad in the neighborhood of the Redmi Note 7, which also runs a Snapdragon 660. Battery life is solid, and the addition of wireless charging is delightful. So where does that leave us? Well, this is a rugged phone, first and foremost, and that's perfectly fine for a certain set of people. Is it great for me? No, not really, but it's not built for writers who work from home and are on the wrong side of 40. This is designed for people who regularly do things that I used to do in my 20s. Camping, hiking, construction. This phone is great for that stuff. Plus, compared to other rugged phones that I've tested in the past, including an older cat phone I might point out, rugged phones have come a long way. They're actually kind of not bad. The software is bad, and the camera is bad, and but the hardware is spectacular from a durability standpoint. But if you're doing any of that stuff that I talked about, 
That's what you care about, the durability. If you are a customer for this phone, you don't want an iPhone. You don't want a Galaxy or even a Pixel. You want a phone that you can slip into your pocket, work all day, and go home confident that it'll still be in one piece. You're probably not going to play games on it. You're probably not going to edit videos with it. But you can read with it, watch videos, and use it with dirty hands. You can do all that and more. And that is who this phone is for. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Bullet Group for sending over the Cat S62 rugged smartphone, even if they didn't know who they were sending it to. Long story, inside joke, regardless. It was fun seeing how far rugged phones have come. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for putting up with my crappy voice this week and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>